May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Over the course of the seven years that I served on the National Anglican Church's Theological Commission, one of the people I came to know and really appreciate was an Inuit man named Benjamin Ariak, a gentle and thoughtful man in his late 60s. Ben is one of the bishops of the Arctic, and one of his passions has been the translation of the scriptures into the Inuktitut language. The end of a long day of our commission's meetings, while the rest of our group unwound with a bit of social time, it was not uncommon for Ben to slip off to his room to do just a bit more translation work. From time to time, he'd give us a picture of how challenging that work could be, given that the Inuktitut language had no words for things so basic to the biblical landscape as sheep and shepherds. The word chosen for shepherd ended up being the one for a person who tends the dog team. Not exactly the same thing as a shepherd, but following a translation principle called functional equivalence, it actually made the most sense. Still, what do you do about all the different kinds of trees that appear in the Bible? Cedars and palms and fig trees. How do you begin to translate those into a language that has been shaped in a treeless landscape? Part of what makes this new Bible translation really work for the Inuit people is that it was all done by people for whom the mother tongue was, in fact, Inuktitut. As Jonah Alalu, an Inuk priest and one of the other translators said, Others have learned the language well, but you'll never learn to think the way these people do. That insight that language is connected to a way of thinking is an incredibly important thing for us to keep in view any time we open the Bible to read. Many of us, of course, have a, you know, a preferred, a favorite translation, but we can almost forget that it's actually a translation of languages very different from our own. I tend to work, first of all, with the New Revised Standard Version when I'm doing biblical study, but I'll often take a look at Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message, to see what Peterson does with any particular passage or verse. And as I do that, I'm very much aware that Eugene Peterson is actually making interpretive decisions right as he translates. But of course, translation always does that. You're always making decisions about how you're going to nuance a particular word. Well, in the 15 verses that we heard read aloud from the first epistle of John, a word translated as love appeared no less than 27 times in about 15 verses, 27 times. 
which would suggest that John is pretty concerned to deliver a message about love to his young church community. Beloved, let us love one another. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Perfect love casts out fear. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Love, love, love. And the thing is, as John writes in his Koine Greek, he has at least four different words at hand that speak of love. Yet he chooses the same one again and again, all 27 times. A quick Greek review. For those of you who have maybe studied a little Greek and have forgotten it, or are thinking you might want to study it and don't have a clue, or maybe for people who will never study Greek, you get the mini-lesson. There are basically four words that we translate into our English word love. There's philia, which points to friendship. There's eros, which is romantic and sexual in nature. There's storge, which is used in the context of affection, and particularly familial or parental love. The love of a mom for her child will often be storge. And then there's Agape, which is the word John is using here, and which can actually be the hardest one for us to get our heads around. The problem is, of course, that our one English word, love, has to bear all of those levels of meaning whenever you carry it over from the Greek. Of course, at some level, we all know that we use that one English word, love, in all kinds of ways. I love my wife, and I love my kids, and I know that those are of a different order, the love for a spouse and the love for your own children. I love my ministry. I love what I do. And I've been known to say that I love jazz. I love New York. I love seafood, and I love to travel. I'm also called to love God. And to love my neighbor as myself. Or as John would have it, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. And when we use that word love in all those ways, we know instinctively that we mean different things, right? My affection for my wife had better be different from my affection for seafood. <laughs> or I'm in deep trouble. Now I said that as he wrote his epistle... John had four different words at hand from which to choose. But that's actually to see things from our side of the thought world reflected in language. The only word John could have used to do the work he needed to do was agape. Because he's pretty clear as he's writing to his church community that he's not talking merely about friendship or about romance or about simple affection. He's talking about agape, which the biblical scholar Thomas Johnson describes as the free decision of one person to give himself or herself up 
for the highest good and well-being of another person without regard to reward. Do you hear what's really at stake then in that word, agape? It's a decision, a free decision to give of the self for the sake of the other who becomes the beloved or the baagaped with no reward, no payback in view. That means it has to do, it has nothing to do with how I happen to feel about that person because it's not a feeling thing, it's a decision thing. Agape is not a two-way street either in which my expression of care or of giving will predictably met by a corresponding expression back my way. I mean, in our friendships, they're they're two-way, they're mutual. In our romances, they're hopefully two-way and mutual. I love the beloved and the beloved loves me. And there's, you know, that, that give and take. In agape, there's none of that at work or nothing assumed. It's just a giving over of self for sake of other. According to Johnson, it's best seen in God's love for humankind in sending the Son to be the Savior of the world. A giving over for the sake of us with no expectation that we will ever be able to do anything back. Now, we should probably receive this as very, very good news indeed if we take seriously what John is writing to his community. I mean, if you read this passage from 1 John with its steady insistence that we love one another, that we ought to love one another, and that we love because he first loved us, and then imagine that it has anything to do with feeling, with how I might feel about loving all of you, we'd all be sunk. I mean, quite seriously, the people you end up sharing a church with aren't necessarily the ones you choose as your friends. For those of you who are students here, If you spent any of the last year living in residence, you know that there was somebody down the hall who drove you absolutely out of your mind, who you really didn't want to spend a whole lot of time with, who, you know, when you you were down to your very last nerve, they always managed to stand on it. If loving them had anything to do with how you felt about them, forget it. The group of people here who are about to head to Pioneer Camp as the four-month um, seasonal staff, it's a huge commitment to move out there for four months, to live in community, and to kind of have to, to, to live really up against challenges day in and day out. I guarantee that there will be points for those people that the last thing that they're going to feel like is having much affection for each other. There'll be pretty key points when having lived together and worked together, they're not going to like each other much, but they are going to be challenged to have agape for each other, to choose to give over into each other for the sake of something beyond the self. 
See, John is not calling us to feel good about each other. He's not got feelings in view at all. That's not what agape is about. He's talking about the choice to extend the self, to give of the self, to give the self with absolutely no guarantee of return. Incidentally, keeping that in view, that John doesn't really care about feeling at this point, helps make some sense of one of the more difficult passages or verses in this passage, where he says, those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. It's pretty stark language that he uses here, the the language of love and hate. No room for anything even close to hatred as far as he's concerned. Even if you feel a pretty strong dislike for someone, even if you feel at some moments almost a sense of loathing for that person for something they've done, John wants to rule it out, at least in the context of Christian community. But that doesn't mean that you then have to turn around and feel loving toward that person in residence or at camp or in church who drives you absolutely out of your mind. You don't have to feel loving. You don't even have to like them. You have to choose that posture of agape, which means getting beyond our own self. In the case of the co-worker at Pioneer Camp who you can't stand, this might mean putting your own need or desire to feel disdain or even hatred or to gossip about them or to give them that look, put it on the back burner, and to find ways to treat that person as a person in spite of how you feel, as a brother or sister in Christ, in fact. Whether you like them or not doesn't mean it's easy but at least we're not expected to feel warm and cozy about everyone, as if we could. We're just called to have agape for them. Now, of course, John is writing this into community, not simply to individuals. He wouldn't have even imagined the idea that I might own my own copy of something called the Bible in which I could read his words some morning and try to act them out all on my own. Unfathomable for John, as he wrote. He's writing to a community, to a people together, and he's challenging them to do that and be that for each other, to all of them stretch beyond the self into each other's lives out of that sense of giving. John is not trying to create self-sacrificing individuals who will just keep giving themselves over for the sake of others. You know the kind of the, the kind of the pious posture, the almost, almost a martyr complex. Don't worry about me. He's not interested in that. He's interested in an agape people together. Now, having so carefully distinguished between these four loves, between philia and eros and storge and agape, I want to backtrack just a bit and say that ultimately they will overlap and begin to inform each other. And agape particularly will begin to inform the others in the context of a Christian vision. One of the more obvious contexts for that is marriage. 
If we tried to sustain our marriages based on eros alone, they'd all last about two years. Not that marriages are somehow fated to lose the delight of romance and of eros, but rather that if at some point a marriage doesn't begin to be characterized by the affection of storge, or the loyalty and the give and take of philia, of friendship, things will wear very thin, very fast. But even more, it's the choice that is agape, the giving of the self or from the self for the well-being of the other without regard to personal reward. It's that that gives our marriages their real fighting chance. In marriage, we will not always be particularly likable, and there will be times when we will fail to rise to the challenge of being even a friend. The other in the marriage may actually realize that today they don't much like us, And they're sure as heck aren't going to be feeling a whole lot of eros going on. It's on those days when the other chooses agape in spite of it all that the relationship is truly shaped. Not just the marriage relationship either, but ourselves and our souls For John says that while no one has ever seen God, if we love one another, God lives in us and God's love is perfected in us. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God and refashioned as we abide in Him and He in us. To choose to love, to choose to love, to live as agape people, is to be shaped and fashioned ever more deeply in the image of God who indwells us. Incidentally, the Inuktitut version of the Bible, which my friend Benjamin Ariak worked so lovingly on, is going to be released later this spring, the first translation of its kind known to the North. It is for Ben and for the others, an act of agape offered into the life of those communities. Hard, hard work they did for 20 years, offered over into the life of those communities for generations to come. It is in giving. It is in that kind of giving that the deepest things are sown. And ironically, the greatest things are received. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia.